Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 16 this morning. Matthew 16, as we continue jumping back into our study through the Gospel of Matthew, titled Jesus is King. I want you to think for a moment while you're turning there, um, when, when you are an adult, one of the things that you kind of feel socially obligated to do throughout your life is to attend weddings. And I want you to think, I want you to try and estimate how many weddings you think you've attended in your life. Real quick, this isn't a test. God won't strike you with lightning if you over underestimate. How many weddings do you think you've been to, okay? So how many in our congregation you would say, I've been to 10 weddings or less? 10 weddings or less, okay? We've got a couple, 10 weddings or less. Javen's been to more than 10 weddings, and he's not even out of high school. He is doing good, all right? Who's been to 10 to 25 weddings? 10 to 25 weddings in their life, okay? Moving on. Who's been to 25 to 50 weddings in their life? I'm raising my hand. 25 to 50 weddings in their life, okay? 50 to 100 weddings. Wow, you've had a lot of wedding cake, a lot of wedding cake, 50 to 100. We got two back here. Okay, I think some are still holding out. This is going to shock me. Who has been to 100 or more, if you could guess, weddings in your life? 100 or more. Anyone that falls in there? 100 or more? Okay. How many of you are 50 to 100? Raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. 50 to 100? D? Robert, maybe? All right. <laughs> D's telling you how many, right? Yeah. Most of us men were like, I don't know, too many. That's how, that's how most of you think. I've been to a lot of weddings. Uh, being in ministry puts you in a lot of weddings. Being in a church family puts you in a lot of weddings. I also occasionally am asked to do wedding videos. And so I've been to a lot of weddings for that. And I don't know, maybe some of you can identify with this. After you get married, all the hoopla and the details of the wedding day just really don't matter that much to you. Am I alone in that? You're like... Give me a break. Let's just do the I do's and get out of Dodge, grab a piece of cake on the way out, and then get out of Dodge, right? And being in, in videoing weddings and being a pastor, I've seen, even since we got married, we had a very simple wedding. Our budget was quite limited. Uh, weddings these days, man, they obsess about the weirdest details. And I'm not judging those who had this, but I'm just saying from my own perspective, most weddings these days, now this might go over some of y'all's heads, they have a wedding hashtag. How many of y'all know what a hashtag is? Some of you are like, I don't know what a hashtag. It's the pound sign hashtag. Yeah, that's what a hashtag is. And you use it on social media. And so everyone who takes a picture at your wedding uses that hashtag when they post for that wedding. I've been to a wedding that had their own special drink for the wedding day. I've seen people spend thousands of dollars, literally, on wedding cakes. I've seen people spend tens of thousands of dollars on bands and things like that. And again, nothing, none of this is morally wrong. It's just strange to me. Um, and so a lot of the hoopla around the wedding day, I'm going to be honest, when I'm attending as a guest, meh, who cares? But I will say this, as many weddings I've been to, haven't been quite to 100, D, but as many weddings as I've been to, there's one part of the wedding that always is fun and meaningful to watch. Now, I get a little bit of a, a behind-the-scenes look. I normally, as a pastor, as a videographer, I meet the couple before the wedding. 
and get to know the personalities of these people. Sometimes I've never met before in my life. They just found my website or whatever um, for the video thing. And I, I meet some of these guys who are all rough and tough. You know, they're too cool for school. Uh, you ask them, what, what part of the wedding day are you looking forward to the most? And most of them are like, I don't know, as if they're not looking forward to their wedding day. And I, I love it when that happens because there's one moment of the wedding that really shows the true colors of every groom. And it's the moment that he sees his wife walking down the aisle. I love that part of the wedding because it reminds me of when I saw my wife walking down the aisle. But it's always fun because I've seen some of the most rough and tough guys breaking down, crying out of joy, seeing their wife walk down the aisle. I love that because, you know, guys, we don't show our emotions as good as we should probably. But in that moment, you see in that man his heart and his love for his spouse, no matter how they respond, tears or not. And I don't think, in my limited mind, there's a better way for me to picture the love Jesus has for his bride than thinking of that moment in a wedding. Jesus, we know this, I think many of you, he calls the church his bride. Paul says that in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. I want you to see these scriptures. We all think this as a marriage passage, but really it's a passage about Jesus and the church. He says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that should be holy and without blemish. I think in some ways Paul is describing the custom of a bride doing herself up the best she can on her wedding day. And he shows how the church is the very passion and heartbeat of Jesus. And that he has a love and a devotion for the church. And he has a plan for the church to make it glorious and without spot and holy. And we all know that no church is holy. But Jesus loves it so much that he is working to make the church the best bride it could be. We must believe this, I hope, that the church matters to Christ. Right? Okay. <laughs> I know sometimes you're like, is he asking me a question or is he just making a point? All right, fair enough. The church matters to Christ. In our passage this morning in Matthew 16, will show us that. Think about this. Last week we talked about Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of all the things Jesus could have talked about after this monumental moment, he talks about the church. Of all the things. And think about this. We are 16 chapters in the New Testament. Not very far. And Jesus is already talking about his church. I think that indicates to us this morning that God values the church. 
Jesus values the church. And I think even we ought to ask ourselves this morning, if the church matters so much to Christ, how much does it matter to you? If Christ treasures the church as a man treasures his own wife, how should that speak into how you view the church? How you view your relationship with this church? In our passage, Christ, much like a husband does on the wedding day, is going to make three vows to his bride. We're going to see in Matthew 16, verses 18 through 20, three rock-solid promises about the church. And I trust the vast majority of us here are members of Fellowship Baptist Church that you and I ought to listen to what promises Jesus vows to his church. Let's read Matthew 16, verses 18 through 20, as Jesus speaks and continues speaking to his disciple Peter. He says, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I want to give you three promises this morning. Here's the first promise Jesus gives his church. Christ promises, in verse 18, to build his church. Christ promises to build his church. Now, just in case you weren't here last week or you're maybe not as familiar with this passage... I want to kind of help you orient your mind so that we don't misread the words of Jesus in verse 18. This is a conversation. And so we should read it like a conversation. In the conversation of verses um, you know, 15 or so into verse 20 goes somewhat like this. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think I am? And they tell him who all the other people think he is. And he says, well, who do you think? Who do you think I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in reply, our verses here are Jesus responding to Peter, who is speaking on behalf of the disciples. So Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says this, well, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, let me warn you, we're wading into literally... I think the most debated verse in all of the New Testament, right here, chapter 16, verse 18, when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And eh, boy, everyone has an opinion about who the rock is. What is Jesus building his church on? Now, I gave you a handout in your bulletin because I don't want to spend five minutes going through the exegetical details of why I come to the conclusion I have about this passage and why I think it's the most biblical way to view it. But there are three views. People say the rock is Jesus referring to himself. They think Jesus was talking somewhat like this. You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, I think it's important to note that there's nowhere in the passage where Matthew says, and Jesus pointed to himself, right? There are other places where Peter talks about uh, Jesus as a cornerstone or as a rock. We'll get into why, maybe the, the handout gets into why I don't think that's compelling enough of an argument. 
The other view is that this rock, Jesus is saying that his church is built upon, is Peter's confession of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So Christ would build his church on the foundation of people professing him to be Christ. I think that's true in general. The church is built on our profession of Jesus. That's what binds us together. One faith, one Lord, one baptism is how Ephesians 4 puts it. But that would be reading way too much into this because Jesus doesn't single out Peter's confession in that way in this statement at all. It would be inferring way too much. The view that I take and I think is most faithful to the passage's context is that as Jesus is saying, you are Peter, he's calling Peter, his name literally means stone or rock, the rock on which the church would be built. Now, a lot of people are scared of this because they're like, Pastor Mike, are you a Catholic? No, clearly I'm not, since I'm the pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church, okay? I'm not a Catholic. You don't, you don't have to be Catholic to believe that, okay? Just because the Catholic Church has said, well, based on this verse, actually, they say Peter was the first pope, and there should always be a pope, and um, the pope should be in charge of the church. I think we all would agree that's nowhere in these passages, are we in agreement about that at a Baptist church? Okay, we're in agreement about that. Okay, so, so me saying that Jesus is talking about Peter here isn't me affirming anything about the papacy of the Catholic church, okay? But it's just common sense to read the passage that way, that Jesus is talking to Peter, whose name literally means rock, and you'll see on your handout the more of the exegetical details, I think six reasons I give you why I think he's referring to Peter, and he's saying, Peter, you are the rock on which the church is built. And Ephesians 2 also affirms this. It calls the apostles and the prophets the foundation of the church. A rock on which the church is built. And, and by the way, metaphors can be used in multiple ways in the Bible, right? Paul uses the gospel as the foundation in 1 Corinthians 3. And Jesus, or Paul says the apostles are the foundation in Ephesians chapter number 2. So we just look at the immediate context and we come to the conclusion that Jesus is talking to Peter as the first, really, in the leader of the apostles and saying, it's on the work of the apostles and the prophets, I will build my church. Now, all of that aside, the real good stuff has nothing to do with the rock. It has everything to do with the first part. Or the second part. I will build my church. I would encourage you this week to write that down on a sticky note and meditate on every word individually. I, Jesus says, will build my church. Think about what that means. If we believe Jesus says this, notice he doesn't say, and Peter, you will build my church. No, he doesn't say that. It is Christ who takes upon himself the work of building his church. This is what we need to be reminded of, church family. We have a responsibility to preach the gospel, to invite folks to our church, to be a church that is outward focused and caring more about what happens outside these walls with sinners who don't know the gospel or are going to hell than what happens inside these walls. We should be thinking out there all the time. And that's really hard because there's literally concrete block walls in between us and the outside. But that's where our focus should be. But as much as we put our efforts out there, listen, listen, listen. We don't build this church. We don't do the work of building. Jesus does the work of doing the building. And we have to trust that as we do our work, Jesus most often will do his work of, 
of working with us to build his church. Because after all, Jesus says, I'll build my church. For some of us, that's a good word too. Because by the way, it don't matter if you've been here 50, 60 years, it ain't your church. It ain't my church either. It's Christ's church, which means we don't get to do anything we want with this church because it's Jesus' church. And if it's Jesus' church, we do what his word says with his church, right? I tell my daughters, if it's not yours, don't touch it. Well, a lot of people, they want to play games and they want to mess around with the church and reinvent the church. Friends, the church doesn't need reinventing because it's not ours to reinvent. It's Christ's church. But notice how Jesus says, he doesn't say, I will build my churches. That's interesting, right? What church is Jesus talking about? You know, all of us in here are like, I sure hope he's talking about our church. What is Jesus talking about? He's only referring, it's a singular. So why, why is Jesus using the singular, knowing that he would have a plurality, I mean, thousands and millions of churches, Because Jesus is not referring to a specific local church. Jesus is speaking of the institution or the universal church. He's speaking of the church as an institution. Like we would say it this way. Pastor Mike, the family is under attack in America. Well, you don't mean your family is literally under attack, do you? No, you're speaking of family as an institution. And Jesus is promising here that throughout the ages, he would take upon himself the onus of building his church, his institution. And I think we can look back through history and see Jesus has made good on that promise. Because at the end of the Gospels, his church only has 120 people. I think his church has a few more people in it now. Like, I don't know, again, I'm not judging who's a true church or not, but there are like two to three billion people in this world who say they are Christians. I think he's built his church. And, and, and church family, this, this could be so encouraging to you. Because so many of us, we, could, we can get so focused on our one church amongst Jesus' institution as a church that we think, oh no, Jesus is not building his church anymore because I haven't seen the growth I wish I could see here. Well, friend, the church is growing. It may not be growing as much in America, but boy, oh boy, Jesus' church is a little bit bigger than this North American continent. It's growing, and it is expanding in South America. It's expanding, and it's growing in Africa and in India and in places that you and I will never go because Jesus has made good on his promise. So Jesus has promised to build his global church. Listen now. We can trust that generally... As we put our hand to the plow, Christ will build this church. Christ will build this church. Friend, Jesus often builds about as slow as the people who are in charge of building our stinking roads out here. His progress seems slow, but in the end you can see it. Don't get impatient. Trust Christ will build his church. That's his first promise to his bride. The second promise is that Jesus promises to preserve his church. See, it's easy for us to trust that Christ will build his church in the good times. 
But Jesus' promise later in verse 18 assures us of his faithfulness to his bride even in the bad times. Look back at verse number 18. He says, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and, what's the next phrase? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As if I didn't have enough work to do with this verse, we need to do a little bit of work on this idea of the gates of hell. When you and I hear the word hell, what do we think of? Eternal flame. That's not how people in the Old Testament use the word hell. They used it that way. Hell was also metaphorically speaking of death, right? Look at, uh, I think it's on the screen, Isaiah 30-something, right? 38.10. This is from the scripture. And I said, this is the, the same word that Jesus is using here. I said in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I'm deprived of the residue of my years, so when Jesus is saying the gates of hell, he's not talking about hell flame. Now, we'll talk about how Satan factors into this. Jesus is talking about death. The gates of death shall not prevail against his church. Right? So, so what Jesus isn't saying here, technically, is, bless God, gates are an, a defensive weapon, and if, if hell storms the church, it will not prevail. Well, I believe that, okay? I mean, Jesus is more powerful than Satan. But what Jesus is saying is that even death itself will not stop the church. Jesus is saying that death will not overcome his church. And that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because just a few verses earlier, what does Peter call Jesus? The Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus, just a few verses later, we'll get there next week. He starts talking about how he's going to die. Well, we all know how that worked out. Because did Jesus stay dead? No. Death itself could not overcome our Lord. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, death cannot overcome my church. Now, how does Satan factor into this? Well, if you read John 10.10, we know that death is the greatest tool in Satan's tool belt. What does Jesus say? The thief comes for to kill to steal, and to destroy. You read the story of Job. The, the biggest weapon in, in Satan's arsenal was to kill Job, but God, he couldn't even do that because God wouldn't allow him to. And here's what Jesus is saying. If death is Satan's greatest weapon to destroy my church, he's telling his disciples, rest assured that even death cannot stop my church. And praise God, it hasn't. There are plenty of people in Paul's day and Peter's day that they say, hey, listen, these guys, they've got a big movement right now, but you just watch and see. They'll die off and all this Christianity stuff will die off with them. But Peter and Paul, unlike Jesus, their bodies are laying in a grave. But the church has pressed on. And if Jesus has said that death itself cannot overcome the institution of the church, friend, we must not be discouraged when American culture is against the church. I think that's a little bit less of a barrier than death. We must not be discouraged when hard times come to the church because Christ has promised to preserve his church against all odds 
and against every power that will align itself against the church of the living God. Now, I think we have to answer this because in our minds, we could ask, but Pastor Mike, I know of churches, gospel preaching churches, that died. Do any of you know of a church that preached the gospel that's closed down? Jesus isn't promising the preservation of every local church. There are churches that close down. Whole towns shut down and the church shuts down with it. Churches that become focused on themselves rather than their mission often will die. Now, personally, I've almost never heard of a church dying that was focused on Jesus and his commission. But nonetheless, that does not make Christ's promise true because his church as an institution has prevailed when everything is thrown at it. Persecution? No biggie. His church has been built and it has grown and has been preserved. Opposition in the culture? No biggie. Satanic attack? No biggie. Church division? No biggie. Because Christ has promised that even the gates of death will not stop his church. Another way for you to think about this promise is that if the church, as Jesus says, is an eternal institution, that's what he's saying, it's an eternal institution. How committed should you be to one of the few things in this life that will not die? Wasn't it Jesus that told us to set our affection on things that do not, uh, that are not destroyed by the corruption of moths or rust? That so often as people, we get so focused on things that will be destroyed at the judgment of Christ. But one of the very few things that will not be destroyed at Christ's coming judgment is the church. And yet so many of us, our commitment to his church, his bride, is so fickle. It's so easily swayed by other priorities and other things that get in the way. Friend, I've never met a Christian who gave their life for the church who regretted it. Maybe you have. I'm not saying that's true for everybody. But if you give your life loving and serving Christ's bride, I think that's a good one to do. Are you with me on that? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe a good way for us to be confident that at the judgment seat of Christ we will be rewarded by the groom, Jesus, is that if we treat his bride really well. That's a good one. You want to really tick someone off? Don't treat their wife well. Yeah. You want to honor somebody? Treat their wife, treat their family well. And here I think we could be challenged as people to recognize that if this is Christ's bride, the church, the institution of the church, then we ought to love it and, and be involved in it the best we can and be faithful to it. Not treat it as a passing commitment that's less uh, important than our own jobs, than our own social calendar. Yet so many Christians, their attendance to church is about as fickle or maybe more fickle than their attendance to the, the social club down the street. But it's Christ's bride. It will endure the final judgment. And we must give our lives for it. 
The last promise Jesus gives is this, that Christ promises to give his authority to the church. Now look at verses 19 through 20. This, this is a, a, a little bit more meat that we need to work through here. Look at verse 19. And he says, and I will give unto thee, notice that's in the singular. Okay, he's saying to Peter, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay? What are these keys? we got to answer this. What is the keys of the kingdom Jesus is talking about? Well, keys symbolize authority or ownership, don't they? Right? Uh, actually, last Sunday we had our, our fellowship at my house for the chili cook-off. And uh, I asked uh, Sid Hodge and some others to load up the chairs in his truck, and I made a fatal oversight in delegating that task. I forgot to give those men an ability to access the building. So they're going to the back to the missions department to get in the building, which has a punch code on it, and they have no key and no code to go get the chairs from the fellowship hall. Listen, and their own pastor forgot the code to the door that gets us into the back part of the building. Listen, it don't matter whether my name is pastor on our website. I had no ability to access this building at that moment. I didn't have, they didn't have the uh, master key to get them into the missions department area to unlock it from the inside. What do keys symbolize? They symbolize the ability to let in or to keep out. Okay? So what are these keys of the kingdom? Well, Jesus seems to be talking about that letting in or keeping out, right? He says whatever, look at verse 19, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. So what he's saying to them is that the, the church, he'll say these very same things. Look at chapter 18. He's going to repeat this statement in chapter 18. Look down at verse 18 of chapter 18. It, speaking in the context of church discipline, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus isn't just extending this authority to Peter. He's giving it to the church here in just two chapters. But what is he saying to them? He's saying that Christ was the one in his ministry that would set the boundaries of who was in his kingdom and who was not, right? He preached a sermon on who was in the kingdom and who was not. He would tell people, your sins are forgiven you, but yet Jesus is going to give his authority to the church. Now, he's not saying that the church forgives people their sins, like Jesus does. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is that the church has the authority from heaven to ratify by receiving into membership who is part of the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me on that? When we vote to bring someone on membership or we vote to baptize somebody, what we are doing as a church is we are exercising the keys of the kingdom. We're saying this person's testimony is credible, not just in their words of belief and faith in Christ, but also in their desire to live for him. We see that they're trying to grow spiritually, so we affirm that they are Christians. Listen, friends, that is the authority Christ has given us, is to determine who makes up this church. God has given us the authority to preach his gospel, to invite people into his house. I don't know if you've ever thought about evangelism and sharing the gospel as a privilege. It's a mighty privilege. Like the same privilege, like when someone hands you the keys to their car and says, hey, can you take this over there? And you're like, oh no, this is a lot of responsibility. Like, what if I crash this thing? 
I wonder how many of us Christians, we've been given the immense privilege of the keys. But we're never inviting anyone into the house. That's weird. Imagine that. You're closing on your house. And I remember when we bought our house just a little over two years ago. You sign like a thousand papers, right? And you cough up an extraordinary amount of money that you'll never see again, you feel like. And you do all of this stuff, and at the end of all that rigmarole, you know, they give you these branded cups and things that you don't need with the bank's name on it, and then they give you the keys. Can you imagine putting down a 20% down payment and signing your life away in a mortgage loan, getting the keys to your house and never going inside of it and never inviting anyone else in? But yet, friends, Christ has given us the keys to his kingdom to invite people to come, to preach the gospel like Jesus preached, to preach who is in the kingdom of heaven and who is not. And yet some of us, we've never opened the door and invited someone into his house. Oh, friend, what a privilege it is to exercise the authority Christ has given us to preach his gospel. I mean, think about it. What gives you the right to tell someone that if they don't believe in Christ, they will perish in eternal flame? This passage gives you that right. Christ himself has said to you and me that we have his authority, his blessing, his keys. And so we can go and preach with his authority, inviting people into his kingdom. Friend, I wonder if you value your ability to vote in the church on financial matters more than the keys of the kingdom to allow people into his, into his house. What a privilege we carry to preach the gospel. Many of you know my oldest daughter, Natalie. She's six and a half. She's a pretty crafty one. You know, every, everyone, if you have more than one kid, you normally see this dynamic where there's the silent rebel and the outward rebel. You know what I mean? Nat is the silent one. She's, she's very, she's a good girl, but she, she can be real crafty. And recently she's discovered a new way to try and manipulate her parents. A lot of times she would ask us, hey, dad, mom, can we go to the park on family day? Which for us is Monday. Can we go to the park? And we'd say yes or no. But she started to figure out that because we haven't promised her that we'll go to the park, that we can change our minds based on the circumstances, whether or not we're going to go to the park, right? Well, now what she's doing, because she really wants to kind of hem us into a corner and make us do stuff, she, every time we say something, yes, we'll do that, or yeah, we can watch that show together as a family, or yeah, we could play a game tonight, she'll say, do you promise? You know what she's doing? She's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hook you on this one. I'm going to make you do it. Well, sometimes I'm like, I can't promise you, kid. I don't know if it's going to rain on Monday. I'm not promising you nothing about the park on Monday. I'm hesitant because I don't want to be obligated to do something I can't live up to. What I love about our passage this morning is Christ makes three promises without restraint, without hesitation. He obligates us to these three promises. Like wedding vows, he promises to his bride, the church, that he will build it. So let's trust him. Let's pray. Pray 
that Christ will build his global church by building this local one. He promises that. He promises that he will preserve his church. Now, unfortunately, there are churches that die. But Christians, we cannot, we could be so encouraged by the fact that the history tells this story so well. It doesn't matter what has tried to stop Christ's church, it has not prevailed. And Christ promises to give us his own authority. Don't take lightly the privilege to hold the keys in your hands and invite someone into his house. We could ask Jesus, do you promise? And in our passage, he says, yeah, I promise. Let's spend just a moment reflecting and meditating on these promises, how they might apply to us as Shelby comes and plays. I don't want us to, to hear Christ promising us as his bride something and not stop and think about it. When was the last time you prayed to the builder of the church that he would build the church? When was the last time you prayed about that? Maybe this morning you're discouraged and you're like, I don't know, the church is under attack in America and our own church over the years has suffered losses and things like that. Man, revisit these promises. Christ is faithful. Christ is faithful. Maybe, maybe you ought to take your keys with you this week and invite some people into his house. Say, hey man, this is what the kingdom has to offer. Let me tell you a little bit more about it because Jesus said I can. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask you'd help us to remind ourselves of these promises, to reflect on these promises, to rejoice in these promises. You are faithful. You've been faithful doing these things for 2,000 years. What a joy. Bless us now as your church that we would do our work of inviting people in and watch you build your church. No, you have not promised that you will make this particular church grow in this particular season. But Lord, we can trust that if you are a builder, that is what you do best. You build. So Lord, as we look to you, we pray we would see you faithful to this promise, not just in our church, but in every gospel preaching church in our community. There's so much work to be done. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for your attention this morning. I want to give you a couple brief announcements.